0: Kemba financial credit union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time, 2% cash back on purchases
1: and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply offer ends June 30th, 2024.
0: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact,
1: where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Earlier this week marked the 15th annual observance of National Women and Girls HIV AIDS Awareness Day. So today's guest is especially poignant. She's someone who has spent most of her career focusing on this, and her name is Celeste Watkins-Hayes. She's a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Northwestern University, an author, and an educator. Her book, titled Remaking a Life, uses the HIV and AIDS epidemic to better understand how women achieve radical improvements in their social well-being in the face of social stigma and economic disadvantage. It is extremely powerful. And it has a ripple effect for any reader, whether you've been affected by HIV AIDS or not, because it shows what happens when there is a support system. I was so fascinated by her book and fascinated by our conversation. And I hope you will be too. Just before we began recording, I I asked you if most people call you Dr. Watkins Hayes, and you did say, please call me Celeste. Yes, I did. (laughs) Welcome to the (laughs) podcast, Celeste. I'm so happy you're here. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. This is just very, very cool. And we discovered today that we actually have deeper connections than I knew. I, I know a former student of yours who, in listening to the podcast, said, oh, my gosh, you have to interview my professor. But we just found out that you're very close friends with my best friend, Nia's family.
0: Yes, home. Detroit is home for me. And it's great to hear the work that you're doing with Nia and Detroit Blows and investing in the city, but more importantly, perhaps, investing in the idea of bringing women together Mm. and bringing them into spaces where they're getting their hair done, but they're also in conversation. And getting to know each other and yeah. getting opportunities to connect. So I think it's it's just wonderful. So um, when I learned that I was coming on this podcast, people from home said, oh, you know, she has a commitment to the city of Detroit. So really happy to, to be here with you, Sophia.
1: It's so cool. I just <laughs> love it. I love when you realize how deep things run. Before we get into your work, which I'm going to pepper you with questions about because I'm so excited, just... About what you're doing in the world, I, I always like to go back and find out from people where they began. Hmm. and And so, as you said, you grew up in Detroit. I, I'm curious what kind of a kid were you? Were you always really interested in people's sort of health and and in the systems that people were existing in in the city? where where did your Where did your curiosity come from?
0: Well, I was always interested in inequality. Mm -hmm. So my parents grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and moved to Detroit in the late 60s when a lot of African-Americans were recruited to work in the financial industry. Mm -hmm. So the idea was because it was the Motor City, there had to be banks and other financial services that um, serviced the auto field, but all kinds of other industries. And in that moment of diversification, my dad, who was a graduate of a historically black college, Fisk University, and my mom, who attended Tennessee State, were recruited. Well, my dad was recruited to to move up to Michigan. And mm-hmm. what was so interesting to me as I grew up and we eventually ended up moving to the suburbs and One of the things that struck me was the growing inequality, and how it was that by my dad, yes, working hard, but getting this opportunity. All of the different things that it created in our lives, Mm. whether it was our access to better schools, our access to better housing, our access to a whole host of institutions. But always being aware that that wasn't happening for a lot of people that looked like me and Mm. having early questions around why was it that things were being put in place where people weren't getting access to the things that would help them to be happy and whole. And that kind of social justice influence was something that I began asking at a very, very early age. And I remember I was working as a summer intern in a uh, law firm and was just seated in the middle of privilege. And not seeing anybody who looked like me and understanding that as I moved through different spaces, resources were being distributed in ways that were making major differences in people's lives, Mm. not because of differences in hard work, but because of differences in opportunity.
1: Mm. That's amazing. I I wonder, is there a memory from that time, from, from that awareness coming online for you that sticks out? Because I... I I I hear what you're saying and then I go how does a little girl see this? Mm-hmm. You know, what what did you see that tipped off the question asking? Was there was there a ride to school you were taking through Detroit where you were like what's happening on that side of the block versus that side of the block? Like what do you think in hindsight turned that light bulb on mm-hmm. for you?
0: I think that um certainly you know, I, I grew up in the church, and my, my dad would take my sister and I to, to church pretty regularly, mm-hmm. and I was surrounded by people who were amazing and talented, but didn't have the resources to send their kids to the best schools Mm. and were hungry for information about education, about great jobs, about kind of how to move up. So they would often come to my dad as a resource Mm. or a person to get advice from. And I would ask him, you know, how is it that when we go from, you know, one side of Michigan to another, because at the time, you know, white flight was hitting the Detroit area really hard. So Mm. people were moving further and further away in terms of the suburbs. And I'd said, you know, why is it that my elementary school, you know, I started and I was one of the few African-American kids there. By the time I graduated from high school, it was almost all black high school within the same school system. Wow. So why is it that groups couldn't coexist, right, and kind of share resources and not feel threatened and not worry about what it means if another group comes in, because we're really looking for the same thing, right? We're looking mm-hmm. for opportunities, we're looking for resources, and we're looking for things to be able to build in this life that we have. So I remember having conversations like that with my dad, and then my mom was, in, was a school teacher. And my mom taught at a high school for pregnant and parenting teenage girls. And I think that's when I first got interested in the intersection of inequality and trauma and Mm. the idea that all of us have struggles. All of us have incidents in our lives that are disruptive, that are traumatic. But if you are also grappling with major inequalities and not getting access to resources, Mm -hmm. then what does that then mean in terms of that trauma being magnified and having ripple effects, right? That if you imagine a pebble being dropped into water and the ripple that it creates. Imagine a boulder being dropped and the ripple that it creates because of kind of the cumulative effects of what you're struggling with. So as I watched the girls and realized that, you know, what they were struggling with as these young moms were so many other issues. They were dealing with poverty. They were dealing with you know, sometimes the aftermath of childhood sexual trauma, they were dealing with the challenge of, you know, how to help their families support themselves. And they were doing it in a context that was pretty bleak in terms of what was available to them. And then I would look at my opportunities and just because of where I went to school and just because of the neighborhood and just because of the family I was in, Mm. all through that opportunity that we got to come into the city and get a great job and you know move up the economic ladder how vastly different mm-hmm. my life trajectory came beca- became because of the opening up of opportunity and how narrow that became for other people because of the closing off of opportunity
1: mm. That's so good. I'm like, if Oprah was in the room, she'd be like, tweet it. (laughs) You're like, that's the line. It goes up. You know what I mean? It's so important to to think about it in that way. This idea of opportunity existing as something that can either be expansive or contracting. Mm -hmm. And, And it makes me think about how in so many arenas of public discourse, when we talk about resources, when we talk about social programs, health care, programs like welfare, community support, you know, resource support, you hear this awful. It's like if there was a phrase I could take and just burn it so it could never be used again, it would be pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Because what we're yeah. not talking about is that this idea, like the boots. Mm-hmm. If you have access to opportunity, you have the quote boots. And if you live in an opportunity desert, if if your opportunity has been so constricted that you have no option, there are no bootstraps to speak of. Right. There there is nothing to pull yourself up by. Right. And and I think that there is a great support for this idea of hard work. Mhm but we have to remember that the playing field isn't even for everyone to begin to work from yeah and and where can we if we adjusted our our sort of priorities and thinking where could we help to fill those gaps to lift everybody up enough that they would even have the opportunity to begin to work, to right. begin to change circumstances.
0: Right. I often say, you know, I often ask my students, how, how did you get to where you are as a student at Northwestern University, one mm. of the most prestigious institutions in the country? And they'll say, I worked hard and my parents worked hard. And I'll yeah. say, I completely understand and get that. But what about the kids who couldn't get into Northwestern because they weren't at great performing schools? What about those who couldn't afford to come? What about the people who are cooking your meals and cleaning your dorms? They work hard, too. Mm-hmm. And yet it is exponentially harder for them and their kids to be able to put in place the path to be able to end up at a place like Northwestern. That's that's changing slowly. But the reason that's changing slowly isn't because there's a differential in the hard work and people are suddenly working harder. And that's why Mm -hmm. we're seeing more economic diversity in Northwestern. It's because the institution recognized the invisible privilege at work that was Mm -hmm. filling the seats in the classroom. So one of the things that I see as my role as a sociologist is to make invisible opportunity visible. So no Mm. one's denying that you didn't work hard. No one's denying that, you know, it didn't, you know, personal... Um, you know, accountability matters, but we have to recognize that that then marries with a larger opportunity structure, Mm -hmm. right? And it's an opportunity structure that privileges some on the basis of race and class and gender and sexuality and disadvantages others Mm -hmm. on those same bases. Mm -hmm. So when we're able to see that, we then have a more comprehensive story and a more Mm -hmm. accurate story of how we get to where we are. So even going back to my own biography, my parents worked extremely hard. But a key piece of that story is the opportunity they got to be able to plug that hard work into something that then allowed them to economically move up.
1: And I think something that's so amazing about that, when we go into our little sort of reptilian, scarcity-based, you know, tribalistic human brains, Mm -hmm. we're like, but I deserve to be here. Well, you know, why are you saying I didn't? And it and it isn't that. The this the scarcity model tells us the lie that there's this finite bucket of opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I love in listening to you talk about it in the way that you are, what you're saying is you can enlighten your students. Of course you worked hard and it's great that you're here. And I'm not saying you don't deserve to be here. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is there's a whole bunch of other people who also deserve to be here. Right. Who've been held out of the room by this sort of invisible barrier. Right. And if we could bring those barriers down, more students could have this opportunity. More people everywhere, you know, even outside of university could have opportunities. And and we got to talk to this great data science recently who was explaining that in terms of gender parity in the workplace, Mm -hmm. if we actually created it, if we actually paid men and women equally in every company in the country, which we don't, we would raise the GDP of the United States Mm. by $2.2 trillion. Mm -hmm. So it's not, oh, well, if everyone starts making more money, then that means there's less room for me to move up and make more money. That's not it. It's not if we took these invisible barriers down Maybe I wouldn't be here. It's like, no, you'd be here, but we'd be able to grow this place. Right, right. We'd be able to make more room for everyone. We would be
0: able to build a larger proverbial table. Right. So everyone could have a seat. Absolutely. And we'd have, you know, new businesses, new ideas, Mm. new innovation. Mm. And that's what contributes to growing the pot, right? Mm -hmm. So when you imagine the dreams deferred, right, for lack of opportunity, It's not just for the individual. It really affects all of us. Yeah. Because that's a business that didn't get created. That's an idea that never took off.
1: Maybe a new piece of technology that could have cured a disease that doesn't
0: exist. Right. That we never got to experience because... The talent pool we diminished because Mm. we were so obsessed with a kind of winner-take-all mentality. Mm. So part of what I see my work doing is illuminating, on the one hand, the invisible opportunities, and then on the other hand, to talk about the barriers and the challenges that people face Mm. and to think about, as you bridge those two things together and fill those gaps, What's the role of, yes, the creation of opportunity, but also what's the role of safety nets, right? So what's the role of policies and institutions that catch people when they're dealing with the aftermath and the effects of the system that we all live in so that they can get healing, they can get services, they Mm. can get whole, and then get to a place where they can accept and capitalize on a future opportunity?
1: Mm. So when you think about that the way that you look at things that you began to look at things as a young woman mm-hmm. when you were seeing that kind of inequity when you were looking at the students at your mom's school when mm-hmm. you were seeing your your dad's career path mm-hmm. opening all of these doorways how were you exploring that curiosity as a kid what were you what were you reading you know mm-hmm. what authors did you get into were there things you were watching that that began to kind of paved the road for you to to the academic mm-hmm. space that you then occupied.
0: Wow. Yeah, so I I got very invested in learning about African American history
1: mm-hmm. and
0: it was in college that I started to think of myself as a feminist and started investing in learning about women's history. When I was growing up, the identity that I most associated with was my racial identity because I could visibly see you know, the disparities that were taking place. And when I went to college, I went to Spelman, which is a historically black college for women. I developed an intersectional lens, if you will, in terms of being mm. able to see how race and class work simultaneously. So being able to read people like Audre Lorde and mm. Beverly Guy-Chef and Janetta Cole and to be able to bring in, You know, this intersectional analysis and later to be able to read Kimberly Crenshaw in graduate school um, and to have access to these thinkers who were thinking about inequality at large and the ways in which it plays out in very complicated ways at the intersections of race and class and gender. So that really sharpened my lens and made me say, oh, I want to do this. And Mm -hmm. um, for me, I wasn't sure what the career path was going to look like. And I often tell my students that you may not be sure of the exact job, but first of all, figure out the passion, right? What, 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 are you so interested in that you can talk about it at length, Mm -hmm. that you feel like you want to educate people about, that you feel as though I have something to offer to this conversation. So I always knew that I was going to have a kind of helping people kind of job. And I flirted with, am I going to be a psychologist? You know, that summer at a law firm quickly disavowed me of that career. I thought about being a pastor at one point. And what I realized that I liked about that job was the focus on being able to speak to large groups of people to inspire them, mm. to educate them on social justice issues because the church I went to was very, very progressive, super progressive, and was out in front on a lot of social justice issues and being able to think about how do you move people in that way? And in a lot of ways as an academic, you end up doing the same thing, right? You're educating people. You're trying to illuminate key issues and you're mm. trying to inspire people to want to think differently about things. So when I got to Spellman, the idea of I could do this as a professor and mm. to see all these black women professors in front of me. And it's so important. Representation matters. Mm-hmm. It had never occurred to me that, oh, I could do that because I had never seen it before. I had never had a black female teacher Throughout my time, except for one teacher in high school. So being able to be in an environment where I could see that level of excellence, and it looks like me in an academic setting, felt like this is what I've been looking for. This is home for me.
1: Mm. And I think that's so important because a lot of people who've always seen themselves reflected in... Any position really, Mm -hmm. don't understand what it's like to have never seen yourself reflected in that position. Right. And it can be really revolutionary. Right. When you see a woman or a woman of color occupy a space that historically, in your experience, has Mm -hmm. been devoid of those
0: people. Right. One of the amazing things about Spelman is that it's an incubator for women leaders who are passionate about social justice and making the world better. So for example, Stacey Abrams, as you and your listeners know, ran for governor of Georgia, now founder of Fair Fight Action. Stacey was in the class ahead of mine at Spelman and we worked together as student leaders and I was involved in her most recent political campaign. So way back in 1995, Stacey and I would be in these meetings with the board of trustees at Spelman offering the student voice as student leaders. And everything you see of Stacy on the national stage is who she was back in 1995. The brilliance, the integrity, the humor, the commitment to service, that is Stacey and that is Spelman. Spelman women are doers and thinkers, so at times, of course, it was intimidating to be around that. As you wondered at 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old, do I measure up? What will be my contribution? And more often, though, it was energizing to be surrounded by women like that. So I went to Harvard for my PhD, but it was Spelman that has been the most impactful institution for making me who I am. The power of seeing excellence look like you is life-changing. The power of being seen and your experience being centered and your potential being seen and rooted for and supported, it's life-changing because it opens up the road from a one-way street to a superhighway. So to understand my work and Stacy's work and the work of so many other Spellman women, you have to look to that institution and the power that it produces.
1: And I, I think about that a lot when, you know, people talk about the current political landscape. Mm-hmm. And especially after we elected 100 women to Congress mm-hmm. in the midterms, mm-hmm. I've heard people say, I mean, and occasionally, you know, you overhear something at like a restaurant and you, for mm-hmm. me, I'm like, not my place. Don't jump in. Don't know those people. This is not the time. But you know, where, where you hear people say like, well, it's happening. Like, what more do they need? Like, what more do the women need?
0: Yeah. yeah. And I
1: think about it and I think about how even with 100 women in the Congress, that's 27% representation and we're 51% of the population.
0: Right. right. right.
1: So we're still... Experiencing this enormous gap in seeing ourselves
0: in the way that we actually move in the world. Right. Just to move from the what might be called visible representation. Right. Mm -hmm. So we see during the State of the Union dress all of the Congress members, you know, wearing white or Mm -hmm. or those kinds of representations to substantive representation in terms of who's setting the agenda, who's setting the terms of the debate, Mm -hmm. who gets to, who's the ultimate decider, if you will, Mm -hmm. and ultimately whose agenda are we serving? And being Mm -hmm. able to talk about that, being able to call that out is critically important. And what it adds to the table is a much more um, nuanced discussion. So for example, um, you know, in my book, I talk about how how we understood what constituted the movement of the illness HIV to what we now call HIV stage three HIV or AIDS. So how do you know mm-hmm. when HIV has progressed to the point that it's an AIDS diagnosis, mm-hmm. where the illness is at a point where um Uh, it's likely or potentially going to lead to death. The way that we were measuring that was based on the research conducted on men. So what was happening was we were missing in the 80s and in the early 90s a whole slew of people who were dying of AIDS-related complications who were women who had never been diagnosed with AIDS. Mm. So what did that mean? That means they didn't get access to certain services that were designated for people with an AIDS diagnosis. They didn't get access to the same kind of medical care. They didn't get access to the same kind of Social Security benefits. They didn't get access to home health care workers to help them in their dying days to help them, get out of the bed and um, move around and pick them up off the floor if they had fallen, you know, in real material ways. So when you don't have that, visible representation. And when you don't have that substantive representation, the agenda gets set in ways that can be devastating for people. So it actually took women suing the federal government to change the case definition of what constitutes an AIDS diagnosis because They were saying women are dying and they're not being counted. The research isn't isn't being done. They're not getting access to services. And it really took these grassroots activists and women in the government working with them and a whole host of people to push the government to change how we were understanding something that's a medical diagnosis. So when we think, why does it matter? That's, the, that's a way in which gender inequality shows up, right? If you're mm-hmm. just looking at the men and just concerned about how the illness progresses in men and you're just funding that research and you're just focusing on that research, look at what you miss that ends up having life or death consequences for people in wow. terms of how they get counted and what they get access to.
1: Wow. Okay, so between your time at Spelman mm-hmm. and then now talking about this book that you've written and mm-hmm. this incredible research you've done on the sociology of society and also this disease progression, mm-hmm. how do how did we get here? <laughs> like, <laughs> what what happened in undergrad and graduate school mm-hmm. that that led you down this path? Because y- you've clearly always been so interested in these systems mm-hmm. and injustice and in equity in your mm-hmm. community and and how cool that you grew up in such a progressive mm-hmm. church that mm-hmm. encouraged those ideas because yeah. so many don't unfortunately
0: yeah. absolutely how
1: how did it all how did it all begin you know you you saw these women teaching at spelman and thought i could be i could do that i could be that professor yeah so then where do you where do you go how do you begin to identify the academic path that you want to take as an undergrad.
0: Yeah. So the the beauty of Spelman College is that it was an institution that allowed me to be 100% me, meaning my race and my gender were not problematized, right? Mm. They were celebrated and I was in this environment With black women, and it's not exclusively black women, it's mostly black women. So, you know, it's a historically black college for women, but there were women from other races there. But the idea of looking around and seeing so many different models of what it means to be a black woman Mm -hmm. was so transformative for me. And it was the first time that I got to have serious conversations around what it means to be a woman in feminism. It was the first time I had serious conversations around sexuality. It was the first time that I had serious conversations about, you know, when we think about classism, what does that look like and how does that show up? Hmm. Colorism, what does that look like and how does that show up? So to be able to take the seedlings of my social justice passions that were being developed as I kind of watched my parents move in the world and watched the environments that they moved in and the disparities of the environments where we would go to an event for my dad's job where, you know, it's the height of privilege. And then we would go to our church where people were struggling to be able to keep the lights on. To be able to go to Spelman. And get a very clear sense of, okay, this is your, this is going to be your role in the world, and you're going to be a a professor was hugely important. And it was always pushed of you are not here to make a whole lot of money, although that's awesome. You are here to be of service. And that kind of service impulse is baked into the cake at Spelman. And Mm -hmm. for me to go from Spelman to Harvard, because that's where I went to graduate school, was such a culture shock because all of a sudden, Black women were not centered. Mm -hmm. And one thing that Spelman does is that it gives you the confidence, though, to know That because you got to be at the center of the conversation, you know what you're capable of, you know Mm -hmm. what you can do, and you know how people before you have changed policies and institutions and changed the world. So you develop this sense of inner strength and confidence that then sustains you when you enter a place like Harvard Mm -hmm. where – Harvard will tell you that Harvard is great, but they're not going to tell you that you're great. <laughs> right. So um, and in many ways, it'll make you feel like you're not great. And it can be a very intimidating place. Yeah. But I was able to find community and I immediately started seeking out you know, other people in my cohort and other professors who just proved to be like a critical support system. So one of the things Mm. that I think kind of resonates between my life and the book is this importance of support systems Mm. and not taking them for granted and not understanding them as this thing on the side that's nice to have, but something that is absolutely critical to our success.
1: And our survival. And our
0: survival. Absolutely critical. Mm. And the importance of investing. In those support systems and not taking them for granted.
1: How do you think about the difference in investment? You know, when we talk about support systems like healthcare access,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then you think about the support system that you built when you got to Harvard of people in your cohort, other professors, your your personal emotional support system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How did you invest in that and create that? Because I, I will say a question that I get a lot from people who listen to this podcast, and especially young women who are on the way up, they say, how did you build your community? How did you figure out how to be an activist? Where do you start? Mm-hmm. And and from someone who I admire so deeply mm-hmm. who's done this, the way you talk about investing in these systems, I'm curious if Thinking back on it, you have any advice to offer to listeners at home mm-hmm. who are going? I want to do that, but h- how?
0: Mm-hmm. I think there's a there's a couple of things that are possible. So I think that it is critically important to be able to find a community not and, and what's beautiful about the support that a good community will offer is that they offer a couple things. Number one, just raw information about the issues that you care about. So you're constantly being informed. The second thing is encouragement. So Mm -hmm. the idea of when you don't get things right, being told the truth about how you didn't get them right. But also when you fall, being confident in in that your support system is going to lift you back up Mm -hmm. and not expecting everyone to be a part of your support system. And not inviting one person to be the end all be all of your support system because I think mm-hmm. that that is highly dangerous, and recognizing that it it, it doesn't have, in fact the African proverb is true it takes a village. So one of the things that I've tried to do whenever I enter a new environment. Is to think about who's going to be my support system at the peer level, who's going to be my support system in terms of people who are higher up in whatever environment that I'm in, who have been there longer, but then who's going to be my support system for the people I'm bringing up? Because mm-hmm. I actually see that as a mutually beneficial relationship. So I don't see my students as people who just rely on me. I also rely on them. Mm. Because I want to know what they're thinking. I want fresh ideas. I want to feel valued. And I want to be, you know, critiqued and introduced to new concepts because the beauty of academia is that we're always supposed to be critiquing each other. And that's how the work kind of goes forward and moves forward. So there's there's got to be somebody behind me to offer the critique, Mm. just like there has to be you know, people in front of me and above me to offer both the critique and the support. So, and I think that sometimes we get afraid of, of critique because we've had so many traumas of it being delivered horribly from it not coming from the right place in terms of uh, the p- things that people have said to us. But one of the things that f- when I think about writing the book process, I said to my graduate students, I want you to read this book and I want you to go in on this book. Like I want the critiques. I want to hear it because I know you're coming from the right place and I know you're going to make the work better. Mm. And I know that I'm strong enough to just steal myself and say, better to know it now than when the darn thing is published. So tell me now right. how I need to work harder and where I need to work harder. And to be okay with that. And I don't know that everybody's okay with that kind of shifting of power dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. And and that level of vulnerability where they then saw me struggle with the writing process. They, they knew that the book didn't just happen, right? It was the result of years of research, writing where there were times, sometimes it, you know, in the midnight hour, as I call it, where I'm saying, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this. Mm. But being able to stay focused and to say, okay, I've got people around me who have my back. What is it that I need? Mm. And how can I get access to it? Let me go within and figure out what it is I need. And if I'm not sure what I need, who can I talk to that can help me articulate what it is that I need emotionally, physically, intellectually, politically, that's in terms of my social justice fire? What do I need right now in this moment? and Who can help me get there?
1: Mm. That's so important. And it strikes me that when you talk about opening yourself to the critique, to, to being both strong enough to take it and vulnerable enough to invite it, mm-hmm. it again makes me think about the the power center you were able to root into at Spelman. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it reminds me of, of having my own version of that. I was in an all-girls school from seventh grade through my senior year in high school.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And... To your point, when when women are just centered, when they are not when they do not exist in a system that always puts them to the sidelines. Right. right. It teaches you how capable you are. Right. You realize you're capable of answering the question, writing the paper, completing the brief, whatever it might be. And what an incredible understanding to have when for me, I, I then went, you know, I went to the University of Southern California. I went to this mega school mm-hmm. that was obviously co-ed and based with a huge sports facility and culture and things I just was not accustomed mm-hmm. to. And to think about your experience both as a woman and as a Black woman going from Spelman to Harvard, you knew you knew your power already. Right. You knew yeah. your capability already. And and I think that there's I'm really fascinated right now with resilience mm-hmm. and how we build resilience right. into groups and communities. Right. And I think that that it can't be understated that being centered, supported, being aware that you are a powerful intellectual being then creates resiliency in any place you go Absolutely. into that has a system that hasn't been encouraged to to make people like me or you feel powerful.
0: Right. Right. And what I would love for your for your listeners to do is to just think about as they're listening to this, where where is that center coming from Mm. for them? You know, what's the community? What's the group of people? Mm. What's the place that reminds them who they really are? And reminds them of what they are capable of bringing to this world Mm. and to be able to plug into that and to get more access to it and to draw upon it and to slowly and systematically shift out all that does not encourage that because the other part of the story is the ability to weed out. Mm. Right. The ability to weed out relationships, the ability to weed out conversations, the ability to process traumatic experiences and put them in their rightful place Mm -hmm. in your mind and in your life story so that, you know, when I'm at my most difficult and traumatic moments, you know, what I try to remember is I have been through things before. Mm. I have pulled through and it becomes a part of my story. Mm. And it becomes part of the power of my story, Mm -hmm. right? So if we can remember that, even during the difficult times, even during the trauma, to know that absolutely you have got to be able to draw on that center to push through, I think that's what makes all of that, all of the difference. Mm -hmm. And the sociological lens that I bring to this is understanding that, yes, it comes from within, But they are policies and institutions that either support us or don't in -hmm. that effort. And then how do we understand what those are? How do we illuminate them? And how do we make sure that that all of us have access to them?
1: It's almost like being a sociologist on two levels. You have to be the sociologist of your own life. Right. (laughs) And, you know, look at your experience, your trauma. How am I processing this? How am I dealing with it? What are my resources for understanding my experience? And then you're looking at the sociological implications for society, for a system, which reminds me, as we're talking about it, because I'm literally like, you guys, you guys listening can't see me. I'm giddy. Like, my eyes are watering. I'm so excited. (laughs) But for people listening who maybe don't know what a sociologist does, mm-hmm. can you can you kind of unpack the
0: arena of study and, and, sure. and what, what it means? So sociology is the study of systems and cultures and institutions that structure our social world. Mm. So everything from how do people get to where they get to in life to why is it that inequality reproduces itself? Why is sexism so persistent? Why is it that cultures have aspects to it that are very supportive for individuals and other aspects that tend to be very undermining for individuals. Mm. Just understanding the infrastructure and ecosystem in which we all operate is what sociology is all about. So for me, it was a perfect fit because as I, you know, going back to my childhood, as I kind of watch these different environments that I was in, where I would be at my mom's school one day and I'm listening to the struggles that the girls are having and how my mom is trying to help and intervene. And then I'm in my dad's world, which is, you know, he's surrounded by a you know, crazy amount of privilege, and he's trying to navigate that as one of the few Black people in the room, understanding, well, how did it get this way? Mm. And how do people navigate it? And what does it ultimately mean for their experiences, for their kids' experiences, for future generations, just became this this kind of issue that I... Became very interested in. So sociology is a study of like, how does this work Mm. in terms of the world that we live in? Why is this like this? Why is this like this? Mm. So I the area that I focus on is around inequality and race, class and gender and institutions and public policy. So I'm Mm. interested in how certain policies, but also the institutions that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, mm. whether it's our schools, whether it's hospitals, whether it's any kind of institution in which we're interacting with the government, mm. how do those institutions operate in ways that help us move forward mm. or that undermine us?
1: So this makes me really curious about your one of your earlier projects, because I want to get into this project on healthcare and HIV-AIDS, mm-hmm. but you... You wrote something titled "The New Welfare Bureaucrats: Entanglements of Race, Class, and Policy Reform." Yes, and as right now we're talking about what social programs look like in the United States, mm-hmm. as we see a, a, a GOP-controlled government eviscerating them, mm-hmm. threatening to cut Medicare, Medicaid, talking about welfare in ways that are really, really rooted in inappropriate kind of dog whistles and yeah. and and the demonization really mm-hmm. of, of people who simply are lacking opportunity, mm-hmm. like we talked about earlier. I'm I'm curious what you can share because I first think it's important to point out to anybody listening who, especially young people who maybe are like, yeah, I've heard of Medicare, Medicaid, but what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. These are these social health care programs that we have paid into. They're right. not handouts from the government. We as a citizenry have paid for these programs and we're meant to, as we age, be able to get the support we've already paid
0: for mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. young
1: working people. we're mm-hmm. We're meant to get it back. So that feels important to share. But I'm curious with you as the expert mm-hmm. in the room, how how would you begin to explain perhaps what you see out there in the current landscape that's inaccurate yeah. about social programming and yeah. welfare? And, and perhaps even about how the welfare system works and doesn't in the first place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So my book, The New F- Welfare Bureaucrats, was based on field work that I did in welfare offices in Massachusetts. So I <laughs> hung out in welfare offices for over a year and basically watched caseworkers do their jobs mm-hmm. as they interacted with clients. And it, there were s- several kind of myths, I think, out there. First of all, that welfare recipients are gaining or were gaining the system. And I say were because I'm going to talk about how that program has been eviscerated to the mm. point that there, you know, there are very few people who are getting access to what we call TANF, temporary assistance for needy families or welfare assistance. So most of the families were in fact struggling with a whole with a whole host of issues. The two biggest issues were number one, mental health issues that mm. made it Impossible for them to be able to economically take care of themselves. But they were often diagnosed in ways that didn't get them access to something like Social Security disability benefits. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't necessarily qualify for that, but their anxiety or their depression made it so that they really struggled with being able to um, maintain employment. The other thing that I saw were people who were actually working and sometimes working under the table. And there's a great book called Making Ends Meet by Catherine Eden and Laura Lean that talks about Mm. this really interesting point about it's actually impossible to live on a welfare check because it's so tiny. So what happens is that people end up basically having to work under the table and not report it to the welfare office, which obviously puts them in a very awkward position because the welfare office is convinced that everybody is defrauding the system. But the difference Mm -hmm. is that the welfare office operates under the assumption that people are defrauding to buy Cadillacs and steak dinners and go on vacations and things like that, because many of our political leaders have kind of put that out there as a narrative of what's happening. But in reality, we're talking about the single mom who may be getting a welfare check and is working at a local restaurant for tips to be able to pay all of the bills so that they don't end up homeless. Mm -hmm. So really, it's an indictment of the benefits and just how little we were giving people Mm -hmm. that we almost kind of forced them into dishonesty.
1: But that's also such an interesting thing that this idea that people are gaming the system. To your point, Mm -hmm. everyone thinks people game game the welfare system Mm -hmm. to not go to work and sit around and like play video games all day on a flat screen TV that they bought with a welfare check, which isn't happening. Mm-hmm. The the way that people are quote gaming the system is in fact working a job that isn't paying them enough and then needing welfare assistance that isn't paying them enough and combining the two exactly. things to try to stay housed when technically they're breaking the law because they do have a job. Right. And are and are using welfare benefits, but neither of them is supporting people. right? And and this, if, if I can get tangential for a moment, this is why if this idea that, that you bring up of a lot of people who wind up working for tips, mm-hmm. I've been really surprised to learn over the last couple of years some of the ways in which the restaurant system works. And then mm-hmm. I've been surprised to learn that almost no one knows this, that in so many states in America, tips are reduced from the pay that is given to people who work in restaurants, waiters, waitresses, busboys. And so what happens is when, you're, when your tip wages mm-hmm. are substituted as your wages by your employer, that means that restaurant owners can be paying a waiter or waitress as little as $2 an hour and then making up the rest of their pay with their tips. Mm-hmm. So what people don't realize is that so many of these people are still working so far below minimum wage. Right, right. And when I've had conversations about this, people are so shocked. There's a great social movement happening right now called One Fair Wage Mm -hmm. that if you're listening at home and this shocks you, you can look up and you can get on board with a One Fair Wage movement in your state Mm -hmm. to make sure that people who are working in these service industries actually have a wage so that their tips become their tips, Mm -hmm. not... Their entire paycheck or
0: lack thereof. Right. Right. So what what I was seeing in the welfare office Mm. is how that then plays out between a welfare client and a caseworker Mm. as they have this conversation. And basically the welfare caseworker is put in a role where they're supposed to suss out the fraud, but they know— the reality of the fact that their clients can't live on what the government is providing. So it becomes this very complicated dynamic with caseworkers, many of whom are, yes, government workers, but not making a huge amount of money themselves. Right. And what ends up happening in 1996 with the change in the welfare system was this idea of we're going to reduce the welfare rolls by encouraging people to get back to work. and. The challenge with that was at the time we had a booming economy so there were there were more jobs to absorb people but there was no response when the economy slowed down there was no okay we're going to build the system back up when the economy slowed down mm. and there was limited attention to the significant barriers that people were facing so for people who had relatively low barriers you know maybe you were a single mom A college student who, as soon as you finish school, you could get off the system and you had a high skill set. The welfare rolls basically kind of purged those folks pretty quickly because they were able to finish school, get into the economy. They're fine. But for the vast majority of people who were on the rolls, those barriers made it very clear that they couldn't necessarily get a job. But they now were getting less and less access to public assistance. So now what we're seeing now, and this is the conversation we're having in the political landscape, the inequality has widened so much. Mm. And for the people on the bottom, the safety net is so tattered in the sense of access to health care, access to a living wage. And it's putting people in positions of precarity and vulnerability such that the things that they have to do to survive are, in fact, often hazardous to their health. Right. So they're working jobs with crazy hours under, you know, unsafe conditions or. They're in relationships that may ha- help them pay the bills, but it's not necessarily great for their emotional health. But you know, what else am I going to do? And they're in intimate relationships that are that are requiring that. And you know, they're f- trying to find you know pockets of money in a very precarious economy while we're seeing unprecedented levels of income inequality. Not unprecedented because we had a similar era in the you know the 1920s before there was the depression but certainly we've got to kind of reconcile what kind of society do we want to be if we're not providing a safety net and we're operating under this assumption of if you just work hard enough, you'll be fine. Mm -mm. When we know that we eliminated the welfare system, we do have the Affordable Care Act, but it's not covering everybody Mm -hmm. and it's not covering everybody to the level that it should. So we've got to have some realities about safety nets. And the connection between my current book and my new book, the book Remaking a Life, is that I point to a safety net that's actually quite effective. It's the safety net that's been built for people living with HIV.
1: Mm. So was it doing this research on the welfare system that illuminated the safety net built for people with HIV and led you to the
0: second book. So when I was doing the welfare study, I interviewed a woman who was low income, but she was also living with HIV. Mm. And she talked about this support system that she had access to of, it was a racially and economically diverse group of people who were her friends, who gave her access to information, who gave her emotional support, who helped her kind of find access to resources to help her financially take care of herself. And I had this idea of, well, this This is an interesting irony in the sense that she's dealing with a disease that could ultimately be fatal, highly stigmatized, and yet she's talking about this really important support system.
1: And where did the support system come from?
0: So really from the activism of people who got together in the 1980s and realized that as HIV was progressing and people were dying... They were also dealing with a lack of support system because Mm -hmm. for some, their HIV diagnosis was also a moment in which their sexuality got revealed. So it was a moment in which family members and employers discriminated against, pulled away and often left them with few resources. So many of the HIV activists, while they were acting up on the Washington Monument to push the federal government to pay attention to HIV AIDS, to develop new medications... To start to think about how do we eradicate the disease, we're also thinking about how do we build a support system for people who have HIV who are dying? So whether it's housing access, legal assistance, economic assistance, even, you know, food assistance and even, you know, giving people information about who will bury you. When you pass, because there were funeral directors that would not take people that had died of AIDS, right. this infrastructure gets developed. First in major cities like New York and San Francisco, where you have a very strong LGBTQ community that was involved in activism. But you also had it happening within communities of color, although they didn't have the same level of resources. Certainly black and brown LGBTQ folks were instrumental in pushing this agenda forward. And over time, you start to see a safety net that culminates in the passage of the Ryan White Care Act that Mm. nationally institutionalizes a safety net for people living with HIV. So looking at the welfare system and then looking at the HIV system, it occurred to me that it's very ironic and paradoxical that this safety net, first of all, got built through HIV and not economic need. So Mm -hmm. why does it take an HIV diagnosis for people to get access, right? right? And the second thing is we can't deny the fact that while people of color and women have been instrumental in building the safety net, really what helped to build it was the political power and the cultural and social and economic capital of white gay men. Because essentially what they did is they used their experience of sexual marginalization, but their experiences with white privilege and male privilege opened the door and got them access hmm. to critical conversations and to be able to push the agenda forward in a way that changed everything.
1: Hmm. So, what it's I kind of the ultimate example of like when you get to go through the door, you must hold it open for other people. You behind must hold you. it
0: o- right, right, right. Wow. And this irony of who do we ultimately think safety nets should go to? Yeah. Right. And the beauty of the HIV community is that those activists didn't close the door for everybody else. Yeah. And the beauty is that women pushed it open and said, What about women living with HIV? Yeah, we want to come too. We want to come too. And there were African American and la- black and Latino. People working within this movement that said, we've got to deal with the importance of racism in the HIV movement. Mm-hmm. So what they did is they expanded the tent so that not only did they build a set of services, whether it's access to health care, mm-hmm.
1: access to
0: social support groups and access to case management and all of those things that create a wraparound experience for people living with HIV, but they also Pushed a political agenda that changed how we thought about LGBTQ populations, mm-hmm. that raised the importance of the inequalities in the healthcare system, mm-hmm. that pushed us on how we conducted medical research and really pushed us to get drugs to market faster, mm-hmm. particularly for illnesses like HIV. So, going back to our kind of earlier conversation, look what happens when you invite more people to the table. Yes. Right. Look what happens when you expand the tent and when you're able to build, Mm -hmm. because it would have been very easy for that community to collapse under the weight of infighting. Mm. It would have been very easy for the community to say, you know what, we're going to have the services for this group, but not for this group. Right because we don't want to work with the sex workers because that is not respectable group. We don't we only want to focus on kids living with HIV because mm-hmm. they're the quote unquote innocent ones. Mm-hmm. It would have been very easy for that community to start to weed out who deserves to be at the table and who doesn't and they didn't do that. So
1: how do you think they managed to not do that because to your point the access came from white male privilege. Mm-hmm. But there's there was an intersectional understanding Within that privilege because those men knew what it was to be discriminated against because they were gay. Mm-hmm. So there, there was some place where you could relate on the pain point of discrimination right. and say, I know how it feels for me and I don't want it to happen to you. Right. And, and, to, and to use your verbiage, the tent continued to get expanded. Right. How do you think— the HIV AIDS community was able to stop the these are good people, these are bad people, these are people who we can sell in the press, and these are people who will get attacked for supporting. How do you think that community was able to put its foot down and say, no, if you are experiencing my experience, Mm -hmm. you're you're here, Mm -hmm. I have a seat for you?
0: I think they did a couple of things that were critically important. Number one, they weren't afraid of constructive conflict.
1: Mm. So,
0: meaning they were willing to take each other to task on things. So, and I still see that in HIV meetings that I go to, where mm. there is a spirit of uh, critique internally mm-hmm. that happens in the conversation. The second thing that they did very effectively is very clear on the idea of nothing about us without us. Meaning mm. policy doesn't get set. Conversations don't get had. Institutions don't get built without a seat at the table for the people most affected. Mm. So whereas in the welfare system, I saw a lot of top-down policy making. The policy would come from on high and then when it then it would hit the experiences of, of low-income people. In the HIV world, that is unheard of. And the reason wow. it's unheard of is because they will take over a meeting or a conversation to say, no, 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 you don't get to set policy and have the conversation without us. So that's a place in which privilege gets asserted in a in a constructive way, right? Mm. And particularly white male privilege gets asserted in a way that no no no, the HIV community, this is one of our tenants and therefore if this is the community, this is who's going to be at the table. Mm. The third thing that they do very effectively is they recognize the impo- the power of storytelling. So think about movies like Philadelphia and the play Angels in America. And you started to see a whole kind of set of cultural productions Mm. around what it meant to have HIV. Mm. And it moved the needle because they understood the importance of changing hearts and minds. And that idea of storytelling in terms of, I want you to hear my story and how this policy and experience is going to affect me is a really important piece of what they do as well. Um, And then I think the final thing that is really critical is that they borrowed a lot of the tactics of the civil rights movement. So being willing to do sit-ins, being willing to do demonstrations Mm. and all of those kind of direct action political tactics are what they then bring to bear in the larger conversation. So I think that's how they've been successful. And in fact, you see in the opioid conversation it's been proposed to borrow some of the work around HIV work in terms of building a safety net of mm. comprehensive services, giving people access to four things, access to healthcare, access to very robust social support through support group meetings and case management, giving people economic assistance, whether it's helping people find jobs mm. or giving them jobs within that community or helping them get access to some kind of government assistance. Mm. But then the fourth thing that is really the special is giving people an on-ramp to political and civic engagement Mm. so that it is not about you coming in to be a recipient of services. It's about you getting access to services and then you becoming a provider of services in turn. Yeah. And you becoming receiving the benefits of political activism and then you becoming a political activist in return. So watching women and I focus on women in the movement, but you see this with with all kinds of groups as well, go from what I call dying from to living with to thriving despite HIV mm. is really about them getting access to those four tools, mm. the health assistance, the economic assistance, the social support, but perhaps most importantly, the on-ramp to using their own voice to shape their lives and the lives of other people.
1: Yes, and that idea that, you can be dying from and then move the needle far enough that you're thriving despite, I yes. think, is so incredible, especially because of the disparity that you talked about where women's health data wasn't part of the analysis for so long that women right. were dying in ways that men simply were not. And, and so I'm curious. I, I know that it was these experiences seeing issues in the welfare system and then seeing how even in the welfare system, the support system around HIV AIDS was— was the critical life raft if you will yeah. to some of the people who might have otherwise been drowning in the welfare system. So how did how did the book come to be because the book for for everyone listening at home who obviously you want to read it by now hello is called Remaking a Life: Reversing an Epidemic, HIV/AIDS and the Politics of Transformation. Mm-hmm. And I love that that so much of the thesis is around you you're brought in to benefit by political activism and you become a political activist. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious in in your research, as you found these support systems assisting women living with HIV/AIDS, and, and then you were able to track the path from the, the, the path that went from dying from to living with to thriving despite. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you see as the sort of highlighted points of what's necessary for people to thrive?
0: Those four those four things you those four things. So and I ended up changing the title of the book. And I'm good it's a it's Oh it's it's different from what I've just read. Yes, and it answers your (laughs) question actually. The the title of the book is Remaking a Life, Mm. How Women Living with HIV Confront Inequality. Mm. Because what I realized as I was writing the book is really this is a story about how women retake their lives after they've been grappling with the injuries of inequality. So what does it mean for women who have been dealing with perhaps solely the trauma of an HIV diagnosis, but in many cases, it's the trauma of the HIV diagnosis, plus it's perhaps poverty, plus it's stigma, Plus, it's perhaps the afterlife of childhood sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. It's a whole host of things. It's, you know, surviving the gauntlet of sex work and what that has meant for them. Mm -hmm. It's a whole series of things that they're dying from. And what I came to understand as I watched women navigate that safety net is that they were learning to fight back in terms of confronting the inequality that had previously hobbled them. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was about developing a new set of tools through getting access to those Things, healthcare, economic support, social support, and political engagement, and through that, they were basically creating kind of a new way of operating in the world. Right? Mm-hmm. They were gaining confidence. They were learning how to be activists and speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. They were dealing with a whole host of mental health challenges that they were that they were grappling with. Mm-hmm. So the HIV safety net kind of set a table for them, so that they could then plug into the services and remake their lives anew. Right. Mm-hmm. And to think about grappling with trauma in a different way, in a way that was more healing, in a way that was more politically grounded, mm-hmm. in a way that ultimately benefited them, but also their communities tremendously.
1: Yeah. And it strikes me because I'm like, I'm fired up having this conversation about this with mm-hmm. you. It's so inspiring. It's fiery. It's passionate. It's hopeful, all of the ways that you're talking about these systems make me feel like we really have the power to do better for each other. We do. And it feels hopeful. Did did you always intend for the book to feel that way? Or was it just impossible to ignore the natural hopefulness that comes out of the community? It was
0: impossible to ignore. Mm. Because remember, I'm an inequality researcher. So right. my plan for the book was I'm going to go in and document all of the ways in which... Women living with HIV have very difficult lives, struggle with policies, with institutions, and Mm -hmm. have all of these barriers before them. And that is absolutely part of the story, right? But that's the dying from part of the story. Mm
1: -hmm. And as
0: I spoke to women, I had to listen to the data and what women were telling me. So um, I had to listen to women who said, I want you to come to my support group meeting and meet this amazing group of women that I'm, that I'm having conversations with. I want you to meet my doctor mm. because she is so cool and she listens to me and she checks my viral load and my T cell count and we talk about what's going on in my life and we get a lot covered in a 20 minute appointment. I want you to come and see it. Mm. Or in perhaps one of the most striking examples that begins the book, the first line of the book, a woman named Dawn saying to me, if it weren't for HIV, I'd probably be dead. Wow. And what she was really saying is, if it weren't for that community, I'd probably be dead. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for that support— If it weren't for that group of people and those policies and those institutions that wrapped around me and allowed me to get material things like access to housing and the ability to take care of my kids, but also gave me a political voice, helped me deal with some traumatic incidents in my past that I had been struggling with, that had been hobbling me, I would be dead if it weren't for those things. So it was such a powerful example to me that I said in a set of examples. That I said, actually, this book is very hopeful. And this book is actually pointing the way for something that's working right. Yeah, And that, in fact, the story is we need to expand this. We need to figure out how to replicate it. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that the safety net is operating, the HIV safety net is operating operating in areas where it's not. Right. So we yeah. know, for example, when you look at the HIV epidemic grow fastest number of new cases happening in the south. Where is the safety net the weakest? Mm-hmm. In the south, right? Wow. Because it hasn't had that same kind of historical building out that some of our major northern cities have had. But we know what the solution is, right? right. And we know how to do it and do it well. We need
1: to implement. We
0: it. need it and to implement it. Mm. And then how can it be replicated when we move it to the opioid crisis, yes. right? When we think about broader healthcare it's expansion, mm-hmm. we know what works in terms of what does it take to move people from dying from, to living with, to thriving despite injuries of inequality. It takes access to healthcare. It takes social support that is robust. Mm-hmm. It takes economic support. And it takes an on-ramp to political and civic engagement so Mm -hmm. that they can take part in the process.
1: And it strikes me that as we talk about this, what we're talking about is a fuller life. It's a fuller, richer, more hopeful life. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that if we applied this model to so many other arenas— We could make people's lives fuller, richer, and more hopeful. And again, as the data shows us, whether we're talking about HIV-AIDS, the opioid crisis, heart disease, which, by the way, is the number one killer of women in America, any of these things, if we apply Mm -hmm. infrastructure like this to it, costs come down. Right. So when we talk about economic support, when we talk about welfare, if we were investing in those things properly, we would actually save so much more money in the long run. Absolutely. And that feels like an Important thing as we're coming into Super Tuesday and an election year to remind people if this is the stuff they care about, both morally and fiscally, that you've actually got to vote for more robust social programs and support right. to help not only humans but the economy. Right. You know, right. We, we we can do both. Absolutely. And it and it feels like the kind of thing we have to keep talking about because as you said, there have been so many leaders who've perpetuated these, frankly, lies about systems being gamed. Mm-hmm. And it does take us as a constituency, whether it's the HIV AIDS community or new young voters, really saying, no, I'm going to advocate for my people. Right. I'm going to show up right. for for them and expect them to show up for me. And And we do have the right. power to
0: do that. And to not allow people who need the assistance to be demonized. Yes. Because the reality is... Going back to the uh, invisible support, all of us are the recipients – and I use the word recipients very deliberately – of some kind of support that is largely invisible – but that proved to be critical, right? Whether it was the parents who gave the first housing down payment, right? To help you be able to buy your first house or your first car, whether it was the fact that your parents or grandparents could go to college on the GI Bill that was Mm -hmm. systematically denied to black folks who had also served in the military, who came home thinking that they would get their educations paid for and did not. Mm -hmm. It was through the FHA housing loan that you or a family member might have received. So all of us have been recipients mm-hmm. of some level of support, mm-hmm. but it's invisible and it's easy for us to argue that, like, I earned that. But, you know, linking to the beginning of the conversation, yes, you worked hard, absolutely. But recognize that other people are working just as hard, if not harder, and don't have that infrastructure, Mm -hmm. to help them move up the ladder and help them to survive. Right.
1: So important. What would you say that, because we're talking about the support we need from political leaders, and Mm -hmm. first and foremost for us as citizens, we can vote for political leaders who will actually create systems of support. But what would you say the average person can do in real time to help offer support to the HIV AIDS community?
0: I think that, first of all, lowering the stigma, I think, is really important. That's Mm -hmm. something that we can all do on a a daily basis. And I think that as we learn about HIV, as we encounter people who are living with HIV, but Mm. also encountering people who are living... In contexts where their risk of exposure may be higher. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm talking about people who are marginalized on the basis of sexuality and uh, gender status and race and class, because we know that HIV can happen to anybody anybody can acquire HIV but it yeah. disproportionately affects our most marginalized mm-hmm. so if we're able to reduce the stigma not just for people who are living with HIV but for people who are at um, who find themselves in environments of higher risk I think that is probably the single most important thing we can do yeah. the second thing that we can do is vote for political leaders who understand the importance of this investment that that you and I are talking about and that don't fall for the idea that it's draining and it's we have the data to show everything from food stamps and what access means for the future educational prospects for kids and how that nutritional benefit helps their brains and helps their academic achievement to the importance of the HIV safety net. So we have hmm. mounds of rigorously conducted research to demonstrate that the Many of these programs work and work very effectively. Mm-hmm. Could they be improved in their implementation? Yes. But we cannot allow flaws in the implementation to be used as the, as the excuse for eliminating them. Yes. And too often we fall for that trap. If there is one case of fraud, if there's an instance of of inefficiency in the system, then that becomes the case for this is why we need to get rid of the whole system. And we've got to recognize that for the political ploy that that is. Yes.
1: That feels so important. Thank you. What, what would you say to anyone who after this conversation thinks, I might want to explore a career in sociology? Or research is mm-hmm. there is there advice that you would give to those
0: listeners? Absolutely, or even you know HIV work because hopefully I'll inspire kind of the new generation of activists mm. who are working on the issue. I would say it's really important to be able to be curious. I, I can't underemphasize overemphasize the importance of being curious. Mm. And the the way Sophia you ask questions and illuminate issues, it's so powerful and if all of us can be that Dynamically curious.
1: Thanks.
0: <laughs> what a world it would be. So, my advice to your listeners is be dynamically curious mm-hmm. and have a lens towards social justice. Have a lens that is fundamentally about helping people realize their full potential, that doesn't adopt a scarcity model, yeah. that really recognizes all of us are here for a purpose. All of us are here to contribute, and our job is to help each other Mm -hmm. along that path.
1: Mm, I love that. Okay, my last question for you, and thank you for being so generous with your time. I like to ask this of everyone. Sure. The podcast is called Work in Progress. Mm-hmm. And I wonder when you hear the phrase, what is the first thing that springs to mind as a work in progress in your
0: life? Oh, my goodness. That's such a great question. We could have a whole podcast around <laughs> um, what it means to to juggle multiple responsibilities especially when you bring passion and intensity mm-hmm. and understanding and recognizing the importance of self-care and truly adopting the idea of putting that first. I mean, we give it, it's getting more lip service, which is wonderful. We're at least acknowledging the discussion, but I think, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I am still a work in progress and understanding what that fully means, yeah. what that fully means in terms of when I need to say no, When I don't need to just grind it out because I wear that as a badge of honor or because I feel such a sense of responsibility to myself and other people to really recognize that my best and highest use of time is mobilized when I'm taking care of myself and being very strategic about how to put together those precious 24 hours in a day that we are all gifted when we wake up in the morning.
1: Hmm.
0: So work in progress. I am working on that. <laughs> I love it. Same, by the way.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Oh, you are welcome, and thank you. This has just been such a pleasure and an honor, and the work that you're doing, and listening to all of the guests that you've had. What what a great set of conversations!
1: Thank you so much.
0: You are welcome.
1: This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.